hear the word of God. Reading at verse 1. And as soon as it was morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and the scribes and the whole council. And they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he replied to him, You have said so. And the chief priests accused him of many things. And Pilate again asked him, Have you no answer to make? See how many changes or charges they bring against you. But Jesus made no further answer, so that Pilate was amazed. Now at the feast, he used to release to them one prisoner for whom they asked. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man named Barabbas. The crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answered them, saying, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. And Pilate again said to them, Then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? They cried out again, Crucify him. Pilate said to them, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, more, crucify him. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas. And having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now we've been following the arrest and the examination and now the trial of Jesus before Pilate. And that trial is now coming steadily to a conclusion. Taking the gospel accounts together, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we meet a cast of characters in the story. There's Jesus, obviously, Pilate. There are the chief priests and the elders. There's Barabbas, the prisoner. There's a mob. And in Matthew, there's Pilate's wife. In Mark 15, verse 9, Peter, or Pilate rather, asks the question, do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? He's being provocative. Matthew 27, verse 19, the choice is even more explicit. The governor uses the title Messiah. Whom do you want me to release for you, Barabbas or Jesus, who's called Messiah? For he knew it was out of envy that they had delivered him up. And the choice facing the crowd then is the same choice that faces people today. We're either for Jesus or we're against him. If Matthew was writing after AD 70 and the fall of Jerusalem, then the choice would have been for these people between a hot-headed zealot on the one hand, an insurrectionist, Barabbas, and this meek Christ, this meek, silent Messiah, who called us to love our enemies as well as look after and love our brothers and sisters. Pilate 
discovers by his observation the authority's real reason for handing over Jesus. Although blasphemy was a real thing, it wasn't the thing. Uh, Not so much that they were not offended by the blasphemy, but Pilate perceives that it was a desire for power over the populace that was driving it. It was for envy. And their envy came from their thirst for power. This aside, by the way, comes from the Holy Spirit. He's the omniscient one, the one who knows what's on your mind right now and the one who knows what's on your mind all the time. And nothing ever escapes him. And from time to time in the Scriptures, we're told by the Spirit what was in somebody's mind like Pilate's mind right now. It was for envy that they had delivered Jesus to him. Matthew is the one to tell us the story of the intervention of Pilate's wife, Claudia Procula. And uh, it's an interesting story. In the absence of uh, a counsel for the defense, in the absence for the presence of his disciples to argue his case, to show sympathy for his case, there is nobody, nobody speaks up for Jesus until Claudia interrupts the proceedings. She steps forward to be his advocate. It's interesting in Matthew's account that this should be there. Matthew chapter 15, we have a Canaanite woman who comes and asks for mercy from the Lord Jesus, and she says about the Lord Jesus, she calls him her Lord, Lord, Son of David. Even his fellow Jews did not recognize him to be the Lord and the Son of David. And here with Pilate's wife, the truth about Jesus is recognized by another Gentile woman. Here's how it reads. While he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent word to him, have nothing to do with this righteous man, this just man, for I have suffered much over him today in a dream. This was a public plea to her husband as the judge to pronounce this righteous man innocent and set him free. So when Pilate, in Matthew's account, then goes to the Jews, the the authorities, and proposes the release of either Barabbas on the one hand or Jesus on the other, what he's doing is diplomatically trying to do what his wife has told him to do, hoping that the Jews will agree to his releasing Jesus. He does this while maintaining that he had found no crime in him, John 18. And without challenging them, Matthew 27, why, what evil has he done? Or as Luke reports, giving us a more full account, you brought this man to me as one who was leading people astray. Now Luke Pilate says, I've examined him in your presence. I have found in this man no basis for the things you charge him with. 
and neither did Herod. I sent him to Herod. Herod sent him back to me. And look, neither from Herod nor from me, nothing deserving of death has been done by him. So here's my plan. I will have him disciplined, that is whipped, which he did, and then I will release him. This shows us what Pilate's intention was, to punish Jesus with a form of disciplinary action and then to release him. Now, there's an irony here. This is all done while Pilate is sitting on the judgment seat. The Greek word for the judgment seat is the word bema, transliterated into English B-E-M-A. Pilate's sitting on the judgment seat. In fact, biblically, the bema should be, and by the way, I'm not going to call it that again because I think in the first service somebody thought I was talking about BMW. I'm not talking about a Beamer. Just to be clear. Uh, Jesus, who's standing there, is the rightful occupant of the judgment seat. Using a different word, Jesus had said back in Matthew 25, 31, he had said these words. When you see the Son of Man coming in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. What kind of throne is that? The Apostle Paul tells us. He uses the same word, uh, bima. Uh, We shall stand before the judgment seat of God so that each of us shall give an account of himself to God. Or again in 2 Corinthians. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive good or evil according to what he has done in the body. The judgment seat is ultimately Christ's seat. He will be the judge on that great day when we stand before the great white throne who is on the throne but the one to whom God has given all judgment. The Father has given all judgment to the Son. Jesus Christ is the judge as well as the Savior, which is what we learned from the book of Judges. Those two offices belong in Christ himself. But in this day, Pilate is sitting on the judgment seat. And because he had just heard his wife's dream and her concerns, because he knows Jesus to have been handed over to him out of envy because he has thoroughly interviewed Jesus himself and found no proof of wrongdoing, Pilate knows that Jesus is not deserving of death. And in fact, Jesus will not ultimately be condemned and executed for any wrongdoing at all. He will not be condemned and executed because of any accumulation of accusations made against him that attract the death sentence. In the end, when Jesus is killed, he is killed for being who he is. He's killed for being the Messiah, the Son of God, what he truly is. 
He is not going to be killed for any fabricated accusation or any proved accusation against him. In the end, truth wins the day. Back to the story. The crowd is gathered before the praetorium. Matthew tells us the chief priests and the elders persuaded the multitude that they should ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. Notice that word that's used there in Matthew 27, destroy Jesus. In making the crowd then have the final decision, Pilate is culpable for cowardice. He's the antithesis of Joseph, Mary's husband. He was a just man. He obeyed the heavenly, the the heaven-sent dream that was given to him. Pilate knows Jesus is just, but he does not obey the heavenly warning that had come through his wife's dream to him, a warning, by the way, that he didn't even need were he himself truly a just judge. The evidence alone should have been enough to convince him. The Gospels tell us he washed his hands, which is where we get the whole idea of washing our hands of the matter, of suffering off any responsibility. And then he says to the crowd, as if it's their responsibility and their job, see to it yourselves, he says. See to it yourselves. That language is disingenuous for Pilate. Because through his ineffectual actions, he himself has set up Jesus' execution whether he takes responsibility or not. What Pilate is trying to evade here is the responsibility of shedding innocent blood before all the people. That expression is used in the Gospels. And it's also used in Exodus chapter 19 in the Septuagint. All the congregation shall participate in the death of the blasphemer. Everybody. If you condemn somebody for blasphemy, every one of you is going to take up a stone and throw it at the blasphemer. There is no way that you can throw off responsibility as the people of God. But Pilate's gone too far at this point. His lack of will has enabled evil's lack of will, uh, evil's will rather, to prevail. Here's how Mark puts it. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released Barabbas, and having Jesus scourged, he delivered him to be crucified. All along this story we've seen Pilate's will to release Jesus. I see no crime. He's an innocent man. There's nothing I have against him. What are they saying about you? He's done everything impossible to release Jesus. He has no will to kill Jesus. But at this point in the story, Pilate's will to release is replaced by his will to satisfy the mob, the crowd. Now, there's nothing worse than to see someone in the high office who may naturally, or by education, or by background of some kind or another, have some kind of general moral goodness or tray. To see them then succumb to that most unpredictable of masters, 
public opinion. Let me read to you from J.C. Ryle, writing in the late 19th century. A person in high place without religious principles is one of the most pitiable sights in the world. They are like a large ship tossed to and fro on the sea without compass or rudder. Their very greatness surrounds them with temptations and snares. High places are slippery places. That's why when we come Eventually, we'll get to the election and eventually we'll get to vote. Uh, And that will be a nightmare in itself for which we should be praying even now that God would give us some wisdom and guidance in that matter. But before we put anyone into high office, let's hear what J.C. Ryle was saying there. High places are slippery places. No wonder the Apostle Paul tells us that we are to make intercession for kings and for all who are in authority. Why? Because by putting them into authority, places, high places, what are we doing? We're exposing them to temptations we don't get. Never look on someone who is really wealthy and think, feel envious of them or jealous for them. They, with their wealth, will face temptations and tests that will never come our way. How hard it is for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Not impossible, thankfully, by the grace of God, but hard, Jesus said. And we should never seek to be in a high place for ourselves alone. We should heed the words of Jeremiah 45, which God says to us, Seekest thou great things for thyself? Seek them not. Seek them not. Well, back to the story. Uh, There's no doubt that the will of the crowd is now set. They choose a murderer over the author of life. They choose the guilty over the innocent. They reject the holy, the harmless, the undefiled, who is now despised and rejected of men. They choose a murderer over the Messiah. How do we get to this stage? How is it that these religious people, religious leaders, who are hyper-religious in their behavior and in their keeping of the law, who are assiduous in their study of the Holy Scriptures, even though they hadn't seen Christ there, how can a whole institution like the Sanhedrin do such a wicked, wicked thing? Well, we believe, don't we, in total depravity. We believe that sin affects us in every part of our being. It affects our mind, our will, our affections, our behavior. Sin is everything we are has been touched by sin. Therefore, everything that humans touch is touched by sin. The institutions of our world, governments and businesses, have sinners. So they can go wrong. They can do good, but they can go wrong. In the Sanhedrin, there were some good people. There was Nicodemus, one of them, for one, one thing, who, who was a godly man and a good man and was faithful to Jesus. He wasn't able to turn the tide of opinion. 
And you may be placed in places like that where you're the only believer and, and you find you, perhaps you throw your hands up metaphorically in horror at the inability you have to change decisions that are being made. But you're there for a reason because the New Testament tells us that God puts his people in those places as part of the Holy Spirit's work to restrain, restrain evil until Antichrist comes and the restraint is taken away. As we look at this horrible story of how this religious, biblical Sanhedrin comes to reject Jesus the Messiah. Well, Pilate has sent Jesus to be disciplined. And the soldiers have had their way with him. They've punched him. They've beaten him. They've whipped him. They've dressed him up in a purple robe. They've got a crown of thorns and they've forced it on his brow. And now he's brought out and Pilate says to the crowd, Behold the man. Behold the man. Now normally, if somebody had been scourged the way Jesus had been scourged, if he'd been guilty, he would have been sent immediately to be executed. There would have been no parading of him in front of the people. He'd have been sent immediately for execution. By bringing Jesus out, Pilate is demonstrating that he has found nothing worthy of execution in Jesus. Moreover, John tells us that Jesus comes out wearing the crown of thorns with the purple robe of monarchy around his shoulders, bloodied and beaten, yes, and bound, yes. But at that moment, he is the living icon of the king of the Jews. There he is in royal purple with the crown on his head. Behold the man, says Pilate. And what they don't accept or refuse to see is that this is the true image of their king, a thorn-crowned king who in his blooded form and in his suffering will set his Israel free from sin and death. In crucifying him, they will in fact put him on his throne of the cross. But the religious leaders have had enough of him. The the officers, when they saw him, they cried out, crucify him, crucify him. We don't want to look at this, uh, this guy. He's got a crown in his head, even if it's a crown of thorns. He's got the royal purple wrapped around him. We don't want to look at him looking as if he's a king in the midst of his suffering and his agony. It's now, it's by now nine o'clock in the morning. And for three hours, the the crowd has been waiting. The religious clergy have been seething with rage as they wait for the governor to eventually make up his mind to give in to their demands. They've already threatened Pilate by using Caesar's name. You'll be no friend of Caesar if you let this man go. A terrified Pilate. And they will mention Caesar again. Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, 
We have no king but Caesar. And in that one expression, in that one expression, they have lost everything. They throw away their nation's integrity. They gave up their nation's individual identity. They throw away their messianic hope. They commit a blasphemy. They commit an act of cosmic treason because God is their king ultimately. And they're now saying, we have no king but Caesar. They're baying for Jesus' blood. And it will have consequences. For Judas, the one who betrayed him, would die a lonely suicide. Caiaphas, the kind of ringleader, was deposed the following year. Herod, before whom Jesus appeared, died in exile. Pilate committed suicide after being banished from Rome. The house of Annas was destroyed a generation later by an infuriated mob. Thousands of those people in Jerusalem would see the horrors of the Roman siege of Jerusalem in AD 70 and the subsequent destruction. Multitudes, multitudes of their fellow citizens with their children would find themselves crucified by Roman soldiers outside what was left of their city's walls. Now, you may want to argue that the blood of Jesus led to all those ends. But it is always true that sin has consequences. But the blood of Jesus would do something immeasurably more and immeasurably better. The blood of Jesus would do its greatest work in salvation, precisely of sinners. Now, focus in on this. Without realizing what they were doing, the crowds call for the death of Jesus and the release of the guilty provides us with a striking picture of what the good news in the gospel is. The guilty is set free. The innocent is put to death. The great sinner is delivered. The sinless one remains bound. Barabbas is spared. Christ is crucified. This is the truth. That Christ has suffered in the place of the guilty. Barabbas goes free so that Christ will suffer. And in that transaction, we see the principle that's that's enlarged upon elsewhere in the New Testament. Here is the just for the unjust, the righteous one for the unrighteous one. It's on the basis of doing this that God pardons the sinner, that he justifies the ungodly. It's we who deserve the punishment, but he suffers for us. We deserve eternal death, but our glorious Savior has died in our place. 
all of us by nature find ourselves aligned with Barabbas. We are by nature without hope and without God in the world. And guess what? Christ died for the ungodly. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. For those who believe and have faith in Jesus Christ, we read this. We are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. We read in Romans chapter 5, since then we are now justified by His blood. How much more shall we be saved from the wrath of God? And again in Romans chapter 5 verse 10, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son. Barabbas is no conversion story, of course. Barabbas walked away free from temporal judgment, from the punishment of the Roman law. You and I walk away free from the wrath of God and final judgment. And in the end, it is the sheer holiness, the perfect innocence of Christ, the silent witness which leads him to the cross. And on the cross, the salvation that it provides for men and women of the whole world. And this is what Pilate is doing without realizing it when he points to Jesus and says, Behold the man. Because there are echoes in those words. Echoes from Zechariah chapter 6. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, the man whose name is Branch, for he shall grow up in his place, and he shall build the temple of the Lord, or he shall build a house in my name. The Greek word for Branch is the word Anatoly, from the verb to rise, to spring up, to sprout, like a branch comes forth from the tree. And uh, it's used elsewhere in the Old Testament. In Numbers 24, a star shall rise from Jacob. That word rise, anatoline, comes from that word, to rise or branch. A star shall rise from Jacob, and the man, the man shall Arise from Israel. The connection indicates that whatever Pilate was thinking, when he said, Behold the man, these biblical prophecies are being fulfilled. Jesus is standing under the messianic title of the branch, the man who would build the final temple. They would tear at his flesh. And they would bury his body. And on the third day, he would raise that flesh up from the dead, resurrected to be the final temple. We worship God in Christ. Christ is our temple. We are being built as, as bricks in the building in, within the temple that is Christ. Pilate's gift of pointing them and 
pointing us to Jesus, the man Christ Jesus. I finish by quoting from Cyril of Alexandria, the great African church father. Listen to what he wrote. Just as in Adam, Satan subdued the whole human race, demonstrating its subjection to sin, so now Satan is vanquished by by a human being. For the one who was truly God and without sin was still also human. And just as all of humanity was condemned under the sentence of sin through one man, the first Adam, in the same way, the blessing of justification by Christ is extended to all the people of the world through one man, the second Adam. So as we see Barabbas being marched through the door to freedom and Christ being taken bound to the cross, we see a picture of what God has done for us. Christ died for our sins. Let's pray together. Lord, we pray that by your grace you would draw us to Jesus today, that those of us who are distant would find him, Those of us who've been looking for him, Lord, would be encountered by him as they've heard the word of God today, given the faith to believe in him. And Lord, we pray that uh, for those who have no interest, that something by your Holy Spirit working in their minds and hearts would lead them to start to seek you and in seeking to find and in finding to enjoy real life. We pray it in Jesus' strong name. Amen.